Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Emily Tampton, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, we have with us Harry Clark Isidio. He is a junior reporter at the New Statesman. Harry, can you speak a bit about who you interviewed this week? Yeah. Hi, Emily. Thanks for inviting me on. It's a long time coming. It's good to make my debut on the World Review podcast. Yeah, welcome. Um, so- yeah, this week I spoke to Aurelia Guillen, who's the head of COVAX. She's managing director. And in the early days of the pandemic, of course, there were really massive concerns about wealthy countries potentially hoarding vaccines for their populations, leaving a lot of middle and lower income countries kind of in the lurches when it comes to vaccinating their own populations. So COVAX was set up by Gavi and has backing from UNICEF and the WHO to try and ensure an equitable vaccine rollout. But as we've seen over the last few months with the Delta variant, which first originated in India, and most recently the Omicron variant, which uh, was found in Southern Africa, the questions of vaccinating the world is more pressing than ever. Before I turn it over to you and, and our interviewee, is there anything in particular that you think listeners should keep their ears open for in the interview? I think looking from the outside in it can seem as though that a lot that COVAX has been branded a failure a lot of very critical pieces have been published over the last few months but I think we really get into the crux and the details of everything and a lot of the red tape that's kind of been dealt with you know vaccinating the world is not an easy feat and so I think the devil's really in the detail and I think just the processes I think and the behind the scenes look at what it takes to vaccinate the world is it there's really interesting insights into that. All right. Well, with that, and without further ado, I will turn it over to you. COVAX came with a realization that the pandemic was going to be an issue that was going to be huge on a global scale. And 
that, as has often been said, viruses know no borders, and that an approach of each country looking after their population only through vaccination was not going to be enough. And so, as we saw the scale of the pandemic really increase, the COVAX partners, so my organization, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, the WHO, CEPI, and UNICEF came together and put together this partnership as a global response to the, 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 the pandemic and making sure that all the countries, regardless of their ability to buy vaccines and pay high prices for vaccines, would be able to have access uh, to vaccines. We're now a year and a half in, in, into the, the, the COVAX work. We have shown that COVAX is a, a truly global mechanism. As of today, we've delivered 635 million doses to 144 countries with a lot more to come. We've allocated 1.6 billion doses. So it's not been a road without its challenges, but now we're really starting to see that we can cover all of the countries, including those who are most at need with equitable vaccine coverage. And uh, obviously on the topic of sort of vaccine hoarding, that's been an issue that COVAX has had to try and overcome. And this was again seen in the 2009 swine flu outbreak, which obviously left a lot of poorer nations vulnerable. And now it seems as though history is repeating itself and the consequences and the stakes, of course, much higher with COVID. Why do you think the world was so unprepared for COVID and in terms of not solving the problems of an equitable vaccine rollout? I, I think, first of all, I think the size of this uh, pandemic is something that is for many a, a once in a lifetime so far event. I think the rate of human migration and, and, and travel, we can expect that we may have more pandemics, but it is really a truly unprecedented challenge that we've had to face. As countries were taking stake and trying to look at their response, one can understand that it is the role of governments to look and protect their citizens. But I think what wasn't taken into account is that cannot be done strictly within the confines of one's borders. It's taken a while to come to this realization uh, that, in fact, it really has to be a global effort with global protection to be able to have all countries safe at, at the same time. And so what we saw was, as you describe, a resultant vaccine hoarding as countries procured a large amount um, of vaccines. And I think the debate is still very much playing on today, as we are seeing now with the emergence of Omicron uh, as a variant. And what we need to think about is learning the lessons from this past year and trying to avoid a vaccine nationalism 2.0 type scenario developing where we, if, if should there ever be a need for a variant adapted vaccine to Omicron, which still isn't proven, but if one thinks perhaps that that will be the need, what we don't want to see is have, again, rich countries tie up supplies of a new variant adapted vaccines. We in COVAX make sure that we have deals with the manufacturers for most of our deals to have uh, the newest vaccines, but we also need to rely on countries coming together under a multilateral view. We need the manufacturers to be transparent so that we don't do a repeat uh, of the situation that we've faced so far. And you mentioned the Omicron variant, of course, among unvaccinated populations, which a lot of middle and lower income countries are, of course, it makes 
mutated versions of the coronavirus easier to breed and mutate and spread. And of course, with news of the Omicron variant causing great concern, I suppose the million dollar question is, had there been a more equitable vaccine rollout, do you think that that the problems where we see Delta variant and Omicron, do you think had there been a more equitable vaccine rollout that such variants would not be appearing? You're absolutely right, Harry. We're only going to prevent variants from emerging if we're able to protect all of the populations, uh, regardless of whether they're they're wealthy or poor and, and coming together. And specifically for Omicron, we still need to know more. But as long as large populations, portions of populations are unvaccinated, we can expect variants to continue to appear. And so had we been able to get to a high coverage quickly, we would have had a much more fighting chance, at least, to, to avoid the emergence of new variants. And we need to take this lesson and we need to think about what will come perhaps as, after the Omicron variant and make sure that we get ahead of this problem now. So does that also then mean by extension that there is a possibility going into 2022 and beyond that? Should the issue of an equitable vaccine rollout not be resolved, that more variants of concerns that could possibly escape our current vaccine portfolio, could that possibly be an issue going forward? Indeed. I think as long as we have a low coverage in, in certain countries, we are creating favourable condition for variants to continue to uh, appear, and it is going to prolong uh, the pandemic. So what we really need right now is really having the manufacturers, having the donors that have more vaccines than, than they need help to really provide visibility so that we can continue the, the scale out of COVID-19 programs across the world in a way that the coverage can increase and so that we get the safe and effective vaccines uh, out to everyone. And of course, the crux of COVAX is trying to make sure that middle to lower income countries are vaccinated and protected. But according to figures from our world in data, less than 10% of people in low income countries have received at least one dose of a coronavirus vaccine. And of course, yourselves at COVAX, you from earlier in the year, you have downgraded your estimates and your targets from what you thought you'd be able to do at the end of 2021. What do you put the low sort of uptake of vaccines in low income countries down to? And why has COVAX fallen so short of its targets? So indeed, we still face a, a hugely inequitable distribution. If you think on an average on the world population, you have 55% of the world population that's received at least one dose uh, of vaccine. But if you look at people in low income countries, that number is 6.2%. So huge inequity. That inequity has been driven by a, a, a number of factors. First of all, um, low-income countries are very reliant on COVAX uh, supply. 80% uh, of the doses in low-income countries come from COVAX. And because the as and when countries were um, making manufacturer contracts uh, for vaccines, we were still uh, busy in 2020 to building the, the initiative and needing to fundraise for the vaccine contracts. That obviously put us behind in the queue in terms of securing production. So if there's one lesson that needs to be learned is making sure that financing is available for buying vaccines for low-income countries 
is available very early on, then that puts low-income countries on a more equal footing to to richer countries. And as we've seen, the scale-up of the manufacturing has been tremendous, but it's been also difficult in certain areas with production issues. We've had an export ban due to the situation in, in India that has made supply difficult. So I think first and foremost, although we are going to be hitting our target where we estimate that by the end of the year, we're going to have delivered about 800 million doses, which is not far off of a 20% coverage. It is not at all where we want it to be. And I think having had those supply issues has been a large contributor of it. And the supply issues have also meant that it's been difficult for countries to plan and therefore from a country perspective, particularly in low resource settings, if you don't know exactly how many doses are coming to you, it's very hard to start to be able to plan and make good use of those doses. And so that's creating what we call absorptive capacity issues, where countries haven't been able to scale up as rapidly because they didn't have necessarily the visibility on the supply that was coming to them because it was being given at short notice. So as we look forward into 2022, now that we have a good line of supply, our predictions and forecasts on supply have been fairly stable in terms of our expectations over the last quarter. What we need to do is really make sure with, to work with countries so that they can have longer visibility, start planning and start getting very high throughputs to increase the, their coverage rates and start to catch up uh, with the wealthier countries. There's a lot to it. And I guess there's a lot that sort of is really involved in trying to help vaccinate a lot of the world. And COVAX, of course, has come under a lot of review over the last few months and it's came under the spotlight. And there's been really critical articles of the project in Time magazine, as well as the New York Times. Some have branded the project a failure. What do you say to those who have branded COVAX a failure so far? I I would say, first and foremost, those who think that COVAX is a failure need to look at the data. COVAX has supplied over 50% of all vaccines shipped to the 91 poorest countries that are supported by the COVAX advanced market commitment. And we've secured access to enough doses to to protect over more than 40% of the the country's populations in total, and we'll get there by early next year. We also have 23 of the what we call the AMC countries, so the lower income countries that rely on COVAX for over 80% of their doses. So if COVAX had not existed, these countries would have been left with literally nothing. And from our perspective, yes, it's been a very difficult rollout. We've been quite vocal in calling out high income countries for hoarding of vaccines. We've been vocal to the manufacturers for failing to prioritize COVAX over their richer and more profitable customers. But that in itself is a failure of multilateralism, not of COVAX specifically. We're very proud. We've delivered 635 million doses to date to the majority of the world. I think that's had a transformative impact in the countries that otherwise would have been left out in the cold. And you mentioned vaccine hoarding, especially in the early days of the pandemic. A lot of major nations and players ordered enough vaccines to vaccinate their population several times over, of course. Canada, I think, is probably the most egregious example where they ordered six times as many for their population, which obviously cut the supply available to you. How much did 
this kind of vaccine hoarding undermine your efforts to try and secure doses for a lot of poorer nations? Um, And the productions from all the manufacturers were indeed very restricted at the beginning as the manufacturers were, were scaling up. As I mentioned, countries with Uh, higher means were able to contract and put resources and reserve volumes very quickly while COVAX was still fundraising for uh, particularly for for lower income countries. I I think one of the things that couldn't have been anticipated uh, in the beginning was the fact that we had actually something good happen in the sense of we had a very high success of vaccines coming through from research and development into being having emergency authorizations and being able to be rolled out at, at scale. So in a way that, that that was a good thing because the governments who had placed many different bets saw most, if not all of their bets come through. But what it also meant is that those vaccines were immobilized and countries were reluctant to release any excess doses until they had a high Uh, coverage themselves. And it led to this sequencing effect where it was very difficult for COVAX uh, and others to get their efforts underway. So in in a way, I think some countries led examples where they started donating their excess supply at the same time as they were doing their domestic programs to try to help increase coverage on on an equal basis. France did that, for example. And so I, I think understanding a little bit how the situation played out, there were still ways where we could have, I think, helped increase access globally more quickly. Wherever you are in the world, If you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, for as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Of course, now where we find ourselves, a lot of conversation is centering around booster shots and booster vaccines. But of course, a lot of major nations are focusing on getting booster jabs into people, whilst a lot of middle and lower income countries are still waiting to get first jabs into people. Do you think it's ethical for major nations to be focusing on booster jabs whilst a lot of the developing world is still struggling to get first jabs into people? Yeah, I think we need to consider the most effective way to help stop the virus from circulating globally. So. I, I don't think it should be controversial to say that from an equity perspective or from an epidemiological perspective, it makes more sense to give a first dose to an elderly person or a healthcare worker in Africa than it does to give a third dose to a healthy young person in Europe. I think as we look forward, thankfully, global supply is going to be less constrained now and going forward. And in a way, sort of play, we should be less in a place where it's a trade-off of one against uh, uh, the others. But when uh, we do make a, a, some prioritization, of course, we should go where uh, we're going to be protecting from severe disease the most rapidly. And I think it also touches back to the issue in terms of the fact that it has a global effect in terms of development against the new variants, against the circulation of, of the virus. And so having a policy where we can support as widespread a development as, as possible of the vaccines, recognizing that boosters do have a role in terms of also protecting vulnerable populations and getting that balance right, I think is going to be the, the, the most important part. Do you think there's like political will on the part of all parties that would be needed to make that happen? Because there seems to be like the director of the WHO described the West as having a quote me first approach in terms of stockpiling vaccines. Do you think that such a truly equitable system is actually a feasible prospect? Uh, I, I think there's a growing uh, realization uh, around the fact that uh, increasing the global levels of coverage is an absolute uh, priority. I think my uh, plea would be that as governments look at their vaccination programs, that they're being very cognizant in terms of the level of uptake of vaccines within countries, of targeting doses where they're going to have the, the highest effect, such that if there are excess doses, which uh, we think there there, there are quite a large number of those can be released uh, as quickly as possible. And also it, where countries have production reserved with manufacturers that they may not necessarily need, offering up those production slots to COVAX, what we call a Q-swap for production, helps make sure that we use the available supply most efficiently. And of course, a key part of 
this is also getting jabs in people's arms once COVAX has acquired doses. And earlier, there was obviously a lot of criticism, not only of COVAX, but individual countries when there was vaccines going to waste because of delays in the transportation process and the administration process. Have you managed to get on top of those fears and those problems, those thieving problems in terms of setting up and getting jabs in people's arms? And do you think that the delay in getting vaccines into people's arms has contributed to vaccine hesitancy in a lot of these areas of the global south and the developing world that have had to wait so long to get vaccines? From a COVAX perspective, this is really important and we closely monitor the capacity that countries have to absorb doses and we're working really hard to increase this capability. And as we think from a country's perspective, this is for all countries, the, the biggest vaccination undertaking that's being done. Usually countries, when they do large scale campaigns, have months, if not years to prepare. And, uh, and that's not uh, the case here. So we've developed and deployed a lot of technical assistance to countries to, to help increase their uptake. One of the things that I think has hurt programs is as there have been doses that have been donated to developing countries that have a short shelf life, that I think has made put extra stress on the system from countries in terms of rolling out doses that, that have short, short shelf life. From a COVAX perspective, we make sure that countries are able to accept and deploy them before doses are deployed. And in general, we've seen that the countries have done a remarkable effort. And actually, compared to regular vaccine programs, the wastage rates has have been lower. But it can't be fully zero. And as we've seen that sometimes short shelf life doses have come to expiry without, without um being able to be rolled out. I think obviously that's not a good result because those doses haven't been used, but it also sometimes fuels a little bit some of the vaccine hesitancy. And so we need to make sure that we don't get into a vicious uh, circle and that particularly as we want to support countries to have the best and most successful rollout, we give them the, the best means to be able to do so and plan in advance and give them doses that they can deploy with sufficient shelf life. In a recent interview, you described the next pandemic, whatever that may be, as an evolutionary certainty. And of course, we're still in the midst of this one and there's a lot to deal with in the meantime. But what do you think are the key lessons that we have to learn from this pandemic to make sure that whatever comes next isn't felt as strongly and as badly across the world as COVID has? I think we need solutions that no individual government can provide on its own. So we need scientific collaboration. We need resilient health systems long-term investments in, in global health networks. And with pandemics, when we have a, a show of force or we have acts of nationalistic self-preservation, that simply doesn't work. And it's only through a global collaboration, it's only through strategic multilateralism that we're going to find a, a way through to this kind of disaster. And ultimately, a, a need for human compassion translated through I into actions. I think as we look at this pandemic as a new form of a globalized crisis, 
we need to think about it in a way that really responds to how we are in an increasingly interconnected. And on a personal level, of course, you've had a lot to contend with over the last 18 months or so. This interview has been a long time coming and you've obviously had a lot on your plate. From a personal perspective, how have things been for you in managing something, considering all the pressure that you're under and the actions of COVAX have real world human consequences? How has that been for you dealing with all of that personally? So I, I won't hide from you. It's been very hard. There's been an unprecedented numbers of late nights of trying to work through problems, troubleshoot, make sure that every single dose that's made available to us finds a a good program to be uh, deployed in. But it's also an extreme privilege also to be part of a global response. And I think being able to get the support from the solidarity that we have seen. I think it's been a huge challenge to anyone who's been working on the, the COVID response generally. I, I mean, vaccination is just one one part of it. And I think it's motivated many of us, my team, that's absolutely stellar to, to, to push through. I think ultimately, what really matters is every morning when we wake up, We look at the numbers. Yesterday, in the last 24-hour period, we've had our record numbers of deliveries in a single 24-hour period, 14.5 million doses in 24 hours. I think that really shows that what we're doing is making a difference and it helps to, to push through the adversity. And looking forward to next year, 2022, obviously COVAX has quite big plans to deliver a vast amount of vaccines to a lot of middle and lower income countries. What, from your perspective, are the key objectives for next year? What needs to be done to try and stem a lot of the issues that the pandemic has caused, in particularly in lower and middle income countries? If you think about 2021 was really around the supply challenge and making sure that supply started ramping up and came through as much as possible. I think that challenge will still be there in 2022 in terms of how we sustain regular, predictable, high quality supply. And I think matched with that, we're going to have a very strong priority in terms of focusing on the countries and their specific strategies, looking at what they want to achieve in terms of vaccination coverage, in terms of vaccination strategies, and really supporting those that have been struggling so far to increase their absorptive capacity, increase the number of vaccines that they can give per day to to the levels uh, that they want. So I think it's going to be a a bit of a game of two halves in, in that sense. And the work that we're doing is really to try to push on both those fronts going forward. Aurelia, thanks for taking the time to join me. Thank you, Harry. Harry, thank you again for for doing that and for sharing your interview with the New Statesman World Review listeners. Thanks, Emily. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy and rate us and leave a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. And I am Emily Tamkin. Thanks for listening and until next time. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.